This is Britain's revenge for the Boston Tea Party. 3,000 screaming teenagers are at New York's Kennedy Airport to greet, you guessed it, the Beatles. This rock and roll group has taken over as the kingpins of musical appreciation among the younger element. New York City cops are hard-pressed protecting the Beatles at their hotel. On every side, there is hero worship that recalls the heydays of Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, live from New York, The Ed Sullivan Show. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, The Beatles. Let's... Bond. James Bond. Uh, Mr. Bond. James Bond. The name's Bond. James Bond. The name's Bond. James Bond. receives a roar of approval from the crowd. Here they are with the smash hit off their number one album, Midnight Memories. This is Story of My Life. Ah, Britbox. Nothing to see here. Just a sensible, well-ordered collection of British telly to escape to. Yeah. Anybody notice the recurring theme in all those clips there? Yeah, pretty simple, right? If you know me at all, you know that I love all things British. I mean, how could I not? Clark, I mean, I know we dropped the E from our last name to be even more British. We could add the E back. But I love all things British, you know. Uh, but how many of you have given yourselves to the British invasion through one or more of those things? What, what up there do you love? Let me, let me hear what's your favorites. Okay, who's, who are my Bake Off fans out there? Yeah, there you go. There you go. What else? What was, oh, Beatles I heard. Who else are my Beatles fans still today? You said Bond, James Bond, got some Bond fans. Sherlock is on there. Any Doctor Who fans? I never watched Doctor Who, but I see those fans. All right, that's good, that's good. I knew it was popular. It's been on for like a thousand years, it's amazing. And they're on like their 28th Doctor Who, right? Or something like that. <laughs> Isn't it fascinating, though? Think about that. The British invasion is what, we're call, what I'll call this. It was just 250 years ago this December, though, this coming December, that the Sons of Liberty dressed up and marched to the Boston Harbor, boarded the British ships, and started tossing that tea overboard. I mean, who knew the way to bring us back to the empire <laughs> was through a baking show? I mean, really, go fit. We invite this into our homes every we, the founding fathers are surely turning over in their graves right now, thinking, what are you doing? 
Uh, if, you know any, if you know Tony and Aileen Baker from our classic service, you know that they are from the UK. She's from Scotland. He's from uh, London originally. And uh, I love talking with him, especially around Independence Day, because he loves to remind me that in the UK, they call that Good Riddance Day. So, you know. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> Fair enough, right? Exactly. Fair enough. You know, there's something fascinating about this trend. What do you think it is? Why, why do you think we're enamored or taken with these shows? Around royalty? Okay, think bigger. Okay, because we're kind of, we're tied to that. I mean, regardless of where you come, if you're American, that is our history, that is our heritage, the 13 colonies and King George and the Boston Tea Party, Party and all that fun stuff. Yes, exactly. Um, we also have the common language. That probably makes it a little easier, right? Than uh, kind of, com- well, except for those words that we don't have in common, like I wrote some down, like a cookie for us is a biscuit for them. I don't get that. An elevator is a lift for them, okay? Did you know this one? Sprinkles, like you put on ice cream topping. In the UK, that's called hundreds and thousands. Sprinkles just seems so much easier to say. Yes, and don't get me started on the misspelling of words where they like to put a U in things, like uh, color and neighbor and odor and even savior. Jesus cannot be good with that. I mean, a U and savior. That's sacrilegious right there, you know, that's craziness, you know. But as we think about this cultural moment um, and what seems to be our cultural fascination with all things British, I wondered, well, you know I love British things, so you knew this was going to come up eventually, but I wondered, does this impact how we see God, how we see ourselves, how we see others? And since we're in this series, we're calling In Plain Sight, I thought uh, it could be fun to take a look and let's explore that question just a little bit. How does this impact us in faith and how, how does the, what can we learn from the British invasion? And to be fair, it's not just a British thing. There's also a hugely popular thing right now called K-pop. Anybody, you know, my friend Keegan's not here this morning, but my goodness, anybody familiar with the Korean invasion? is taking place. You've got groups like, uh, and to be fair, I had to text Keegan because I have no idea about any of this stuff. Uh, it's not just K-pop, it's K-drama, but you have groups like BTS, Twice, Stray Kids, and Blackpink, you know? You have uh, dramas that come on uh, Netflix and stuff like Boys Over Flowers or Squid Game or The Extraordinary Attorney Woo. Any K-pop fans out there, K-drama fans out there? Oh, Keegan would be very disappointed in that. Yeah, but as I thought about all this, this cultural invasion, how it's coming over, I, th- I began to wonder if there are certain elements that we're willing to embrace. Certain elements that we look at and we go, oh, that's cool. You know, I mean, after all, we like the accent, right? The accent's kind of cool, you know? I would try to imitate it, but it's terrible, so I can't. No, no, not at all. This stuff gets on broadcast, so no, I don't want any of that saved. But we embrace some elements, like even the K-pop, and other elements, though, I wonder, are we as willing to be open to other cultural elements? Why are we open to some and maybe not so much to others? That was one of the questions I thought. And even beyond that, we can even see some cultural influences as a threat to our way of life. And so because of that, we put up walls and barriers. But why is that? Why do we see some cultural influences as a threat? 
I guess we could say that with some of these things, we enjoy them, but we would probably like to say, oh, but we don't let them influence us, but I don't know that we can say that's ever true. But it's just something, do we think it's just something to consume? It's novel, it's cute, something we can view through the window. But something that as long as we can admire from a distance, we're okay with. Is that, a, is that how we view it? As long as it stays over there. But then we have to think, you know, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus? And if we're not careful, we can quickly begin in a message like this when we begin to talk about culture. If we're not careful, it becomes a political statement. And that makes me very sad that anytime you bring up culture, anytime you start to talk about this, it becomes, uh-oh, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? Where do you land on this issue? And we really begin to raise those issues and draw some lines in the sand, but really this shouldn't be a political statement. Really, it's not. It shouldn't be. What we need to do is, I hope as we consider this today, as we begin to consider it not from the American perspective or the American evangelical or Christian perspective, but what is the Jesus perspective? How does he look at things like this? Now, why is this important? Why would we even go here? Well, because if you were here last week or if you listened to last week's message, you know that we talked about our significance and we talked about how we search for our significance. We look for it in a lot of different places in a lot of different ways and we look for affirmation and we want people to like us and we look everywhere, success and finance and all these places to say that I'm important. But we came to the conclusion last week that all these things are really insignificant because our significance, our value is not found in any of those things. It's found in God who has stamped his image upon us. We are made in his image. He says we're valuable. He says we're important. And so remember one of the statements I said last week was you were worth dying for. You were worth dying for. But when we take this idea out of the realm of selfish, you know, aggrandizement or whatever, how me, and we take it to its next logical conclusion, where does this go? It's not just me that was worth dying for. It's not just me and people like me that are significant. I can't lay claim to holding to something that others don't get in this area. Because what we read was that all humanity had God's image stamped upon them and because of this, it's not just me that was worth dying for. It makes them worth dying for as well. And I feel like we forget that. Just turn on the news for five minutes. Oh, shoot, just 30 seconds. <laughs> and you very much are confronted with the fact that we forget that. We put ourselves and the people like us in a special category. And we put others outside that category and I become worth it and them not so much and then when we do that we begin to find reasons to resist and even reject others who may not think like us who may not dress like us who may not look like us or even believe like us and it doesn't just become an ethnic nationality cultural message I mean it goes even beyond that because even if you step outside the church here it's easy to see even in our own neighborhood because you can see the differences in like socioeconomic status and the political differences that we have. 
So I find it so easy, that we find it so easy to be blind to the image of God in someone else. Why is that? Why do we become so blind to the image of God in others? Because I think when we are blind, what we do is we find reasons to begin to reject and start othering people. We start othering people. Why do we do that? I want you to feedback with me here. Why do we do that? Why might we reject and start othering people? You guys understand what I say by othering? There's us and them, and we look down on them, and they're not like us, and so we reject that. Why, why do we do that? Oh, that's a good one, Liz. We might feel insecure about ourselves. Way to dehumanize. Scared of the unknown. Yes. <laughs> Protect our own interests. Protect our own interests. Yep. Because we think we're right, and in that economy, there's no room for them to be right. They have to be wrong. Yeah. Yes, it's just me. <laughs> it's an uncomfortable question, isn't it? This is what I've been sitting with all week. Just, you're welcome. It's an uncomfortable question. It just creates within me. I've had just this knot in my stomach all week when I've thought about this message because I don't like this. And the reason I don't like it is because I, as much as I like to think of myself as being so enlightened, <laughs> I can still put a finger on many areas in my life where I'm not nearly as enlightened as I might think I am. I wrote down these things. You guys got most of my list. Fear of the unknown, dislike of the differences. It's just uncomfortable. We don't like change. You know, I put this down. We might accidentally offend somebody. That could keep us there. Fear of losing my place or status. Belief that if they increase or succeed, we lose or become insignificant in the fear of what I might have to give up. And nothing in that list screams Jesus, does it? <laughs> wow. And yet sometimes we find ourselves there. And that's why I think a lot of times we take a question like this and we just go, go away. I just, let, let me get back to Instagram and some reels. Oh, those are funny. Oh, that's funny. And we just numb ourselves to it. But does it have to be this way? And how does God, how does Jesus want his followers to respond to those not like us? Well, to be honest, if we're fair, the Bible has been used on both sides of this issue. You know, I mean, we have to be honest about that. We have to be honest that the Bible has been used to justify dominance and colonization and suppression of other cultures, mostly through the Old Testament, where you see the conquest of the promised land. And so you ask the question, how do we resolve the seeming commands to conquer the promised land with the commands of Jesus to love our enemies? It's a big question, right? We're not going to get there today, but that's a question we have to grapple with. And it's, it's a serious one. And I think the, the, the simple thing to do is go, let's just don't think about that. There's an easy answer. There's not an easy answer. There's conflict. There's tension. And that's okay. Our faith is a tense faith, faith sometimes. And we can live in that tension. That's all right. Daniel Tiger. We can have two emotions at the same time. Right? You know? 
But what I think we need to do is we need to remember that Jesus, we are told, is the perfect representation of God. And so if we ever question or wonder what is God like, the first place we have to go is Jesus. That's where it starts. That's where it ends. Jesus is the perfect representation. He gives us the insight into who God is. And through that, we may have to adjust some of our other understandings of what we think God is because of that. Okay, But when you look at what Jesus thought about this, the cultural stuff that was going on, I want you to know we're not unique. It's not like, oh, they didn't deal with this in the first century. Oh, they absolutely did. They absolutely dealt with it. In fact, what's interesting is if you take the small nation of Israel, even though they had been invaded, even though they were under the occupation of Rome, they still had an air of arrogance about themselves. And why wouldn't they? I don't mean that to be derogatory. I'm just saying they were told they were God's chosen people. I mean, if anything's going to give you pride, that would, right? We're special. And so even though they were under oppression, under Roman guards and everything else, there was still a, 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 a pride about who they were and being God's special people. And so that's what makes it interesting when you begin to read how Jesus engages in some of these cultural moments. For example, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells a very a story that I think everybody in the world is now familiar with. And he does so in response to a question. Let's just take a look at it. So there's a day a teacher, a religious leader comes up, or excuse me, an expert in the law, stood up and asked Jesus a question. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All right, I want to be right with God. That's the question. I, how do I get right with God? What is written in the law, Jesus says? How do you read it? And the expert in the law replies, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, Yes, you've answered correctly. If you do this, you'll live and he wanted to, but he wanted to justify himself. So the religious guy, the expert in the law, he says, Jesus, he says, oh, but who's my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He put him on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave to the innkeeper, look after him. And he said, now, when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you have. Jesus said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Little background. I mean, we're so familiar with this story. I think we miss the nuance of it sometimes. See, the expert in the law asks an important question. I think most of us ask that question, right? What do I have to do to have eternal life? I want to be right with God. How do I get right with God? How can I make sure I'm right with God? And Jesus, you know, says, well, what do you read? The guy says, oh, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus, interestingly, kind of says, yep, that's it. Go do that. Just go do that. 
Easy enough, right? But then the, 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 the lawyer guy here isn't good enough, isn't satisfied with that answer. In fact, it says he wants to justify how he's living. He wants to justify. And when I think about that, I think wanting to justify his actions, he's like a good lawyer. He's saying, but I want to know where are the loopholes? How can I still get in, but get around doing everything that you might think I need to do, but it's just enough to get in? What's the bare minimum that I have to do to still meet the requirement? How low is the bar? And so I wonder if by nature of this guy asking this question, if he's not looking for a reason to continue living the way he's living. I assume there's already people in his life that he's ignoring. There's already needs that he sees that he is passing by. And he's looking for Jesus to say, yeah, that's fine. Just stick with the people that are like you. It'll be okay. But unfortunately for him, he should have left the question alone because that's not how Jesus responded. Now, you've probably heard the story numerous times, and Jesus uses common images to make this point. The, the road Jesus is talking about was a 17-mile-long, rocky, winding path through the desert. It was known for having lots of places to hide, for robbers to hide and come out and attack people. So it was very dangerous. And so no one would be surprised when Jesus says, a man was going down this road and got beat up and left for dead. Yep, that's what happens on that road all the time. Nobody's shocked. Beaten up so badly, though, that the man can't even crawl to the closest town. He's left literally for dead, fighting for his life. And then Jesus shares. He's like, oh, but that's okay. A priest comes along. And if you imagine Jesus telling this story, you're thinking, oh, that priest, story's over. Priest comes along. He's going to get the guy. It's all good at this point. Jesus' is like, no. Priest walks on by. Then a Levite, another religious person, you're like, okay, Jesus made his point. Levite's coming, it's all good. No, that person too walks on by. And we really don't know why. Jesus doesn't give us justification. Were they afraid they'd be defiled? Would they think the guy was already dead? We don't know. They just walked on by and left the guy there. But then Jesus turns this story in a really shocking direction. The audience would have expected a priest. The audience would have expected the Levite or the temple assistant who was, what would they have expected for the third was just, but an ad, average Jewish person walks on the road, sees the guy and stops and help. And that's where you would assume this story is going. But Jesus does not do that. Jesus then says there was a Samaritan. And even Jesus, as he's telling the story, refers to the Samaritan as despised. That was just the cultural understanding. This would be a huge blow to the people hearing the story. Wait, a Samaritan? We don't like them. They're not like us. They're not part of God's chosen. That chosen. They are half-breeds over there in their own area. Why are you bringing that trash into this story? I mean, that would have been the mentality. In fact, for Jesus to say despised would have been an understatement. These were the least respected people around. They were considered unclean and avoided at all costs. You didn't let your kids play with Samaritan kids. You know, that just didn't happen. And for us to put this in a 21st century context, you know, to understand what an oxymoron good Samaritan is, we would have to nearly say something like uh, standing at ground zero and say the good Al-Qaeda terrorist. Hmm. 
Or if you're African-American, it could be like the good Klansman. Wait, what? That's the, that's the power of the reference that Jesus is making. Or even, God help us, a bunch of Democrats talking about the good Republican or Republicans talking about the good Democrat. You know, we just don't see that. This should not have happened. And Jesus uses Samaritan to really drive home the point. And what's fascinating about the story to me is when you begin to hear it, the guy wants to ask the question, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus ends up responding, not by talking about a people group. He talks about the person who does the action, who was a neighbor. And Jesus takes neighbor from being an individual to the actions we do, neighboring for someone else. Isn't that interesting? Moving beyond nouns to verbs from identifying people to actually doing something. Breaking down the walls. You know, and however you might and choose to interpret God choosing the Jewish people to conquest the promised land, there's no mistaking that what Jesus did here was he began to shift the Jewish understanding of how they interacted with the world around them. You see, from the beginning, when you go all the way back to Abraham, when God says, Abraham, I'm picking you and I'm going to do something through you. He doesn't just say, because you're special and I'm going to take care of your people. He does this and he says to him, Abraham, I'm blessing you so that you can be a blessing to all nations. But somewhere along the journey, they forgot that. In fact, even if you look in Chronicles when uh, Solomon is dedicating the temple, there are rules and there are guidelines for the foreigners that come in who want to also worship. Now, yeah, there were limits and restrictions, but they were encouraged. They were welcomed to come and be a part and to see the temple and even from the outside worship God. But I think the people forgot that. And I think you could make the case that one of the reasons that the conquest happened of Israel, where the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Persians and all this come in, is because they had forgotten that the ultimate objective of them being blessed was so that the world may know the one true living God. And they had forgotten that. And Jesus is reminding them, we, I, you were picked, you were chosen for this, for the world. You see, you look at the teachings of Jesus and they don't match up with the cultural understanding then or really today. Yeah. Because Jesus said things like, love your enemies. No, I don't want to. They're my enemies, they need to die. They need to be defeated, squashed, completely destroyed. Jesus said things like, turn the other cheek. Jesus had the audacity to tell these guys, says, if a soldier who can compel you to carry his pack for one mile, he can compel you to do that, you go ahead, pick it up, and take it a second. Go the second mile. Wait, what? Why? That's what Jesus is teaching them to do. Even in his own ministry, going through the town of Samaria, Stopping at a well, interacting with a woman who wasn't married, divorced five times, all this stuff, engaging with Gentiles, healing Gentiles even. And then you can turn your, to the book of Acts. And we don't have time to read the story, but you get to Acts in the first church and Peter, and he's, he's, you know, he's preaching and thousands are coming to faith. And then one day he's out on a roof and he has a vision 
and there's this sheet that drops down with animals in it. And the vision, the, he hears a voice that says, get up and eat. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. Those are unclean animals. I can't do that. And it happens two more times. And finally, the voice of God comes to him and says, how dare you call something unclean that I have said is clean? And in that moment, there's a knock on the door. And there's these guys from this, guy, from this house of Cornelius. And they say, God told us to come get you. And Cornelius was a Roman soldier, a centurion, a Gentile. And Peter's like, I guess this is what God was saying. And so he goes. And while he's there, he talks to them about Jesus. He says, let me tell you about Jesus. He died and he rose from the dead. And it says when Peter was talking to him, the Holy Spirit of God fell on them. And they began speaking in other tongues. And Peter was like, wait, whoa, how can these Gentiles experience the same thing that we have? And in this, again, this whole idea of we're special, this other culture is less than us, God's saying no. God was continuing to break down the walls. Jews who despised Gentiles saw them as defiling even to enter their house, and God says, nope, that's where this is going. We put up barriers. We put up walls around ourselves to protect ourselves. We have an unhealthy amount of pride and arrogance about how great we are and how much we don't need others, other people but we fail to realize and recognize the value that others have, even other cultures, other ethnicities, and how much they can bring to us. And I wonder, what could we be missing from God and from others when we refuse to open those doors? There's so much out there. And in case you think we're, these are isolated incidences, in my study this week I found this, and I just want to put this on the screen. Look at this. this I don't even remember where I found it. It says, the whole world has always been on God's mind and heart. From his covenant with Noah not to flood the world again, to his covenant with Abraham that he would be a blessing to all nations, to the praise of David that all the families of the nations shall worship before you, to the prophecies of Isaiah who declared a time will come that God will gather all nations in tongues and they shall come and shall see my glory. To God declaring that he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish and have everlasting life to Jesus commanding us to go and make disciples of all nations, to the apostles giving their lives to spread the gospel to the nations, to Paul teaching, here there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all, to the glorious scene around the throne of God. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. From the beginning pages to the very end, it's, we cannot be isolated. Yeah. We cannot erect the barriers around ourselves. God has always been about the world. And as I thought about this message this week, the British invasion, one question kept creeping into my mind, and I hate this question most of all. For me, for us, because we and our culture, our American culture, yep, we're fascinated by the British culture, but does our openness and fascination carry over to other cultures? 
why would this have been a completely different message from the get-go if I had called it the Mexican invasion or the African invasion? And why is this? 8.1 billion people in the world, 334 million in the U.S. We are 4.1% of the world's population. Is it possible that there's more to this than what we see here? What could we be missing out on? Something incredible and something beautiful if we insist on everyone looking like us and talking like us and thinking like us. You see, one of the things I love about Ashworth is we've been blessed with diversity. And I realize even saying the D word is controversial. It's been hijacked. Too often God's ideas get hijacked and perverted into something other than God intended. And diversity is becoming one of those words. It's too political. A word spoken to bring about division because what you think about that determines what side you're on. Anybody else just completely exhausted by that? I am. Because before it was a political word, it was God's idea. His plan. It's how he created the world. It's how he's going to renew all things. Every tribe, nation, and tongue. Diversity is God's design, not uniformity. And I'm curious if we can take this word back from all the negative political connotation and vitriol surrounding it and celebrate what God is up to in the world and primarily celebrate what God is doing through his church. Do you know how this diversity plays out here at Ashworth? We have a very diverse leadership team. I mean, we have young and getting older. Uh, we have men and women. We have American and Indian. And just last Sunday, we had an elders meeting. We're discussing about listening to God and waiting for God's direction and how God is moving among our congregation. Those are the things we talk about. Yeah, we talk money and stuff, but that's the easy stuff. We want to really sense and see the face of God. And in that meeting, Jude, one of our elders who's from India, he starts talking about the, the practices, the things that he sees from pastors and Christians in India and it's challenging, and it's convicting, but I'm grateful that he shares it because how arrogant is it of me to sit there and think, well, I'm so enlightened. I have nothing to learn from a pastor in India. Oh, no. I have a lot to learn. And I share these things today not to shame anyone, but my prayer is that we might be like Peter and not just be fascinated by Britbox or K-pop, but that we would get up and go and engage. Go to those who might be different, look different, act different, so that in the process we see and experience God in a way that, just to be honest, would not be possible otherwise. And so I just close with just this. Are we willing to truly be a neighbor? Let's pray.